Our second lesson is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. We're continuing our study of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to begin uh, back to verse 38 because I wish to uh, bring us up to date. We've been studying our relationships. Now look at Jesus as he compares the old with the new. He has brought a new way of life. And that new way of life can only be lived if we have a new birth and the work of the Holy Spirit in our minds and hearts. I have a lot of Christian friends who keep telling me that the Sermon on the Mount is only meant for the Jews and for the kingdom age. And it's only meant for some other area. It's meant for today. You can find every single thing that's here always backed up in the epistles. And so don't try to get out of it. I can't get out of it and you can't either. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist him who is evil. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. And whosoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Then look at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what do you more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. May God bless to our hearts an understanding and a will to obey his word. I don't know how many of you know what a hedgehog is. It's a big uh, name that the Europeans, I think, mostly apply to a porcupine. And there was a great German philosopher, his name was Schopenhauer, and he had a fable about some porcupines uh, who decided to get together because it was very cold one winter. And so they would all gather together because they were cold and they wanted to feel the warmth of one another but because they had quills that were prickly and would stick each other, every time they came together, they'd stick each other so they'd all scatter out again. And then they'd get cold and then they'd come back together again and then they'd scatter out again. And Schopenhauer said that the human race was a great deal like this and Schopenhauer in this is exactly correct. Uh, and one of the reasons for this, of course, is the lack of love and the lack of the willingness on our parts to yield ourselves to Jesus Christ. I can't remember now who the author was. It was either uh, Fitzgerald or Hemingway, one of those people, who left be behind him when he had died the unfinished uh, sketch of a novel which he intended to write. And it had to do with an enormously rich person who had millions and millions of dollars. And he had a lot of greedy relatives who were just waiting for his death uh, so that they could inherit the money which he had. And he also had a great estate. And he left his will to his greedy relatives who could not get along with each other. 
but he left it with the provision that they all had to live on the same estate together. <laughs> and they were all bewildered and confused like this. And that's a good bit the way it is in the world today. Uh, we find ourselves like this in, in this planet we call Earth, and so we have to be uh, separated from our rugged individualism and think about other people a lot of times. Uh, one of my favorite poets is John Donne, and he was the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral. He was a brilliant poet before his conversion, but after his conversion he was even better. Many of you know many of the uh, things which John Donne has written, and probably no quotation of his has been more cited than the one upon which a song has been written, and Ernest Hemingway even gave the title of his book from one of it. Because he was dean of St. Paul's Cathedral, when the bell would toll, it would toll because someone had died, and then there would be hushed, hushed whispers from one person to the other, who has passed away, and then the answer would come. John Donne did a lot of reflection as he would think about these people, and uh, it caused him to think often what had he done to encourage the other person to uh, become a believer in Jesus Christ. What had he done to show the love of God to the person who had passed into eternity to give an account for his soul? And then, of course, he wrote his famous lines, No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by sea, Europe is the less. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. Therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls, for it tolls for thee. You see, he wished us to understand that we had a responsibility for others. I think that those of us, that, you know, these words came to my mind once when I was being hauled to a hospital in an ambulance. I heard the siren, and I had been unconscious and when I regained consciousness, I could hear the siren, and I thought, I wonder who's going to the hospital. And it was me. I was going to the hospital. And then, uh, you know, I've often prayed for sirens when I hear them pass by. I pray for the people that uh, may be in the ambulance. And then last year, about this time, when I underwent surgery at the Mayo Clinic in the intensive coronary care unit, they have a glassed-in room when you first come out of that big type of surgery, you're, of course, not even able to speak. And uh, you look out of a glassed room, and you see people looking at you through the glass. And uh, I wondered sometimes when I saw these people with wonderful, healthy hearts and lungs looking at me and walking around, were they praying for me? And when I was in hospitals visiting did I really look and pray for other people who might be in my condition? Did I have a responsibility to pray for them? Well, according to Jesus Christ, I do have that responsibility, and he wants us to know that it's very plain. The scribes and the Pharisees always wanted to limit their love, and so Jesus wanted, them to, show that, wanted to show to them that they could not do this. That's why last week when he gives us those terrible things that have to do with personal... Uh, assaults, the, the one where if we are slapped on one cheek, we are to turn the other also. Now, this has to do with personal insults. 
And when he says uh, that we are not to resist evil, how are we as Christians to reconcile this with what has been called the just war? What are we to do when people like Hitler come on the scene? Or what are we to do with oppression? I do believe that there is such a thing as uh, a just war. I think there is an ethical responsibility uh, to power. That if I have it in my power to prevent you from being injured and hurt, then I must exercise that power. I don't exercise it with any glee when I hurt the other person, but sometimes to help the weak, you must resist the strong. And I think there are other scriptures with uh, which this can be reconciled here because we are seeking uh, to combat that which is uh, hurtful to others. And we do that for that reason. Uh, then, of course, Jesus says, if someone wants to take away your shirt, give him your uh, coat also. What's he mean by this? That every beggar who comes to me is to be given something? No. Sometimes it's not loving to just simply give to someone when we know that whatever we give them is going to hurt them more than it's going to help them. I worked for some considerable time at the Union Rescue Mission in Atlanta, Georgia as a field project during my seminary days. And I knew that the people who came up asking me for money at the conclusion of the service would likely go right out of the rescue mission and straight down the street to a liquor store where they would buy alcohol. I would be willing to buy for them food, but I was not willing to hurt them anymore by giving to them that which would do them harm. Sometimes there are people who uh, in their distress have borrowed so much that if you lend them more, they grasp uh, at you like a drowning person, grasp at whoever comes near. And they will do a lot of harm in pulling other people down, and you don't really hurt them in the exercise of a wanton expenditure which is wasted and hurtful to the person. And I think Jesus means for us here to exercise love. Uh, love here has to be done in a tough and sensible way, uh, but it's with compassion always. And then, of course, he said, if someone should compel you to go one mile, uh, go with him too. And, of course, he was in an occupied territory. The Romans were there, and they could order any man to pick up his pack and to walk a mile. Well, you know that to walk that mile must have been degrading and insulting to have some person uh, that you didn't like who has now come into your country and who occupies it and you can be conscripted into his servant's service and he can command you to pick up the pack and to bear it for a mile. Well, Jesus said, I want you to do more than that. When you get to the end of that mile of indignity which he has inflicted upon you, you turn to him and give him a big smile and say, sir, I'd like to help you. I'll take the pack another mile. I'll walk in another mile. That second mile demonstrates that you're different from the rest of the world and that he demands of us a standard that's higher than you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Uh, we are to help even those uh, others. This is the kind of love which he wants us to show uh, here. And, and th there is a certain joy to that second mile. I really think the hardest is the first mile. And then, of course, um, he went on to uh, tell us in verse 43, you have heard that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now this is the typical resting of scripture. The scribes and the Pharisees 
were great experts in dealing with the law, but they knew how to resolve away things which they did not want to do. And all of us have a little bit of the scribe and the Pharisee in us, too. So the scribes and the Pharisees had taken uh, from the commandments in the Old Testament, they knew that already it said to love your neighbor as yourself. They left yourself off of this, to love your neighbor. But they knew also that they, uh, that they were not to do harm even to their enemies. Now, in the Old Testament, there were certain judicial things which were punishments from God that were inflicted. That's different. But here, for personal things, we are not to seek revenge, and he wants us to know that. We have a horrible saying that's come down, sweet is revenge. Revenge is not sweet. Revenge is bitter. Revenge is straight out of the pit of hell. It's hateful. Revenge is never sweet. Revenge is bitter. If you get any joy out of revenge, you better go look in the face of Jesus and ask him why it's there. You get no glee out of this sort of thing. So Jesus said, but I say to you, love your enemies. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. My, this certainly speaks to us, doesn't it? Love your enemies. What does the word love mean? We read the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians a while ago, and a very famous Pharisee was giving an autobiographical sketch of himself in the first three or four verses of that grand passage of Scripture. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. If I don't have this love, this love which is the highest form of love, the love that comes from God, which is called agape, the love which we do not deserve, the love which is beyond anything that we deserve, then Paul says that we're nothing, and Jesus says that we're nothing. And that's a hard kind of love to have. I think everyone has certain fancies about being a lifeguard and seeing some very beautiful girl about to drown and swimming out when she calls for help and bringing her back in and saving her. And that's a very great feeling. Well, what if you're the lifeguard and the person out there drowning is a person who is a despicable wretch, someone who has done harm to you and harm to other people too? Are you supposed to turn the other way and just let them drown? Not according to Jesus. You're to go and get that person too because that's what Jesus has done for us. Even for a righteous man will some die. But Jesus died for us while we were unrighteous. That's the kind of love that's shown there in agape love. You know, of course, the other three words for love. Eros is the word which has to do with sexual love. Uh, this is, of course, a, a gift from God, but the word eros had become so contaminated by the time the Greek New Testament was written that uh, the word was not even used. Uh, it wouldn't be used. It does not appear, eros, in the Bible. For that reason, it had become perverted and uh, full of evil connotations. Another thing happens also in the history of words like that, and that is the word charity, which appears in the King James translation of 1 Corinthians 13, uh, faith, hope, and charity. Uh, when Jerome, St. Jerome, was translating uh, the Bible into uh, Latin, 
he was seeking a Latin word, and he would not use the word amour, from which we get amorous, because it also had uh, an evil sexual connotation, but he used the word caritas, from which we get charity, because it's the, uh, a different type of love, and he wants us to know that. Uh, the other word is storge, which has to do with family love and family affection. And this is a good love. It, it's redeemed by God and blessed by him. I have an old, old friend who's way up in his 80s now and who still, when I go and visit with him, he's always telling me something. I, I don't think I've ever stayed in his home more than a day or two that he didn't bring up something about his father who died years and years ago, who was a great a lover of the Bible. And it impresses me that his father, who had died when he was still quite a young man, had had such an influence on him. One day we were discussing Samuel Johnson, the English man of letters, and he reminded me of an incident that had happened when Samuel Johnson had appeared one night at a dinner party uh, very late. The guests were all waiting for him to come, and, and uh, when he arrived at the door, it was raining like it is outside now. A cold rain was falling. And Samuel Johnson came in the, the door late, and they said, what on earth are you coming in soaked like this? Where have you been? And Samuel Johnson told them that years and years before, when he had been a student at Oxford, that uh, he had uh, been asked by his father, who was a bookseller, to put up a stall and sell some books because the family was about to go under. It was a depressed time economically, and he refused to do this. And so his father had to go to a certain place and stand in the rain and sell books to try to keep his son in the university. His father caught a cold which went into pneumonia, and he died. And Samuel Johnson could never get over this. And on the anniversary of his father's death, he would go back to that place and say a prayer and he thought about his father. And this had made a great impression on my old friend because of something that had happened between him and between his father. But the love there was good. The father, of course, forgave him, and the love was bringing out the best that was in them. A phileo, or, or phileo, uh, oh, is another, it, uh, it's a verb for love. It has to do with philanthropy. Philharmonic is a love of music. Philadelphia is a city of brotherly love. A philanthropist is one who loves mankind. Uh, it has a very strong affection to it, and it's a good love that we are admonished to there. But the love that will love the enemy is that agape love which Jesus wishes us to exercise toward those who are about us and which he commands of us, really and which the Holy Spirit alone can work in our heart. Um, I was touched last week when after making the announcement here in church about um, the man in Black Mountain, Mr. Ballou, who worked for the Haynes Electrical Company, Mr. Ballou went down to South Carolina during the snowstorm and had to work night after night without sleep. And... Uh, during the course of his work, picked up a live electric wire, which electrocuted him to the point that uh, he had to be taken to the Charleston Burn Center, and one arm was amputated and both legs 
had to be amputated. He has five children. And so I made an announcement and an appeal last Sunday for uh, a gift. And then I saw, he didn't mean for me to see him because he was startled when he saw that I saw him and he quickly went out of my office. A young black American uh, slipping a letter onto my desk. And this is what he said. Dear Reverend Thielman, I attended the church service this last Sunday when you made an announcement about the man who had come in contact with a live wire and lost the use of his legs and one arm. I realized that this must be a terrible loss to the family and himself, both physically and financially. I always thought that I had things bad, but here is someone who has it a lot worse than myself. I don't have a lot of money, and times for me and my family are pretty bad, but I did have five dollars that I could do without, and I would like for you to contribute it to that trust fund. It is my choice to remain unknown because in layman's terms in the Bible it says, don't make your contributions public. I just ask that you pray for me to stay on the straight and narrow path with the Lord. Thank you very much, a student. Isn't that interesting? Here is a black man sensitive to a white burned man who doesn't think about his color at all, but who's touched with the man's need and who gives out of the fullness of his heart and who wants prayer that he might stay on the straight and the narrow. That's an interesting work of grace that the Lord has wrought in his heart. It's this kind of love, love for enemy, that has stopped much of the evils that have existed in the world and where the gospel is faithfully preached and lived, we find it too. Most of you know that I am a great a lover of William Cowper, the English poet, who wrote many of our hymns. There is a fountain filled with blood, oh, for a closer walk with God, um, and many others. Cowper was a great friend of John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace and Safely Through Another Week and uh, many other hymns. Cowper had a mental illness, and much of his life was troubled by it, and his great friend John Newton brought him the comfort of the gospel and caused him in his sensitivity as a poet to be able to express the love of Jesus in a way that to me is just incredible, and for years I have studied him and I love him more as the years go by. Cowper had a great hatred of the slave trade and of the black people who were abused. And when he would read in the paper about Parliament defeating some bill which would have abolished slavery, this is what he wrote in one of his, his little tracts, like a poem. My ear is pained. My soul is sick with every day's report of wrong and outrage with which the earth is filled. There is no flesh in man's hard heart. It does not feel for man. The natural bond of brotherhood is severed as the flax that falls asunder at the touch of fire. He finds his fellow guilty of a skin not colored like his own and having power to enforce the wrong, dooms and devotes him as his lawful prey. And worse than all and most to be deplored, as human nature's broadest, foulest blot, he causes him and exacts from his sweat with stripes, mercy, that mercy with a bleeding heart would weep to see inflicted upon a beast. 
I would not have a slave to till my ground, to carry me, to fan me while I sleep, and tremble when I wake for all the wealth that sinews bought and sold have ever earned. No, dearest freedom is, I had much rather be myself the slave and wear the chains than fasten them on him. Now there's a man who caught the spirit of Jesus Christ and who expressed it exquisitely. And this is what Jesus is talking about here. And if you saw the 14 hours of roots and you watched, uh, I think my favorite was Simon Haley, uh, you saw some of this uh, love which has so much prejudice to overcome there. Then he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There's nothing that will cause us to be able to love our enemies more than to pray for them. Because if we ask God to bless them, then we must be willing to bless them too. If we ask God to show them favor, then we ought to be willing also to show them favor. And this is a tremendous thing. When we begin to pray for someone, it makes a, a great deal of difference in our attitude toward that person. Uh, we will do things for him, and when we do something for them, uh, what we do will begin to break down the barrier uh, that might exist there. C.S. Lewis is helpful at this point. He writes these words, The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as you do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more and injuring him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. The difference between a Christian and a worldly man is not that the worldly man has only affections or likings and the Christian man has only charity. The worldly men treat certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian, trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not even have imagined himself liking at the beginning. That's from his book, Mere, Mere Christianity. Boy, if that's mere Christianity, the, the real thing certainly puts a responsibility on us, doesn't it? It means to show the love of Jesus there. From C.S. Lewis, I can go to a preacher that some of us have loved for many years, old Harry Ironside, who used to preach at the Moody Church in Chicago. He went out one time to Arizona and preached in a Presbyterian church, a Presbyterian mission to the Navajo Indians out there. And he came in contact with a beautiful Christian person, an old woman. And this old woman had been found left destitute and put out by her tribe because she had a fatal disease and simply left to die. She had been picked up and brought to the mission hospital, the Presbyterian Mission Hospital. 
After nine weeks in the hospital, she recovered enough to begin to wonder about the unexpected care she had received. She said to one of the nurses, I can't understand it. Why did the doctor do all of this for me? He is a white man. I am an Indian. I never heard of anything like this before. The Navajo nurse, who was a Christian, said to her, you know, it's the love of Christ that made him do that. She said, who is Christ? Tell me more about him. The nurse called a missionary to explain the gospel, and the staff began to pray. Several weeks passed, and then a day came when she was asked, can't you trust Jesus as your Savior and turn from your idols and believe in him as the Son of the living God and that he loves you? As the old Navajo woman pondered her answer, the door opened at just this time and the doctor himself walked in. The face of the old woman lit up and she said, if Jesus is anything like the doctor, I can trust him forever. And she became a Christian. Do you see what happened? What Jesus demands of us is a new birth. And the Holy Spirit comes into our lives to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. Those words from the 12th chapter of Romans that tell us not to avenge ourselves against people who have done evil toward us. If your enemy is hungry, says Paul there, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him to drink. In doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. By that, it means it will cause him to feel ashamed of what he has done there. And this is what Jesus is teaching us. This is agape love, and this love can only come to us as the fruit of the Holy Spirit works in our lives, and it only comes when we die to self that we might live in Jesus Christ. As Christians, we cannot help, but sometimes, because we are Christians, having enemies. If we fight the slave traffic, or if we fight, fight prejudice, or if we fight pornography, or if we fight uh, drink or things that are wrong and do evil, there are people who won't agree with us and who will be angry with us. But we can say to them, I may be your enemy, but you're not mine, because the Lord Jesus has taught me to love you. And this is what he is teaching us here from this passage of Scripture. Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? If you greet your brothers only, if you extend a warm smile and a friendly handshake to your brothers, what do you more than others? Even the mafia does that. Therefore, says Jesus, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. We are to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. The word therefore perfect is teleos. It means to grow up. It means to be mature, not to fight and to scrap like selfish little children, but to be mature, to grow up in Christ and to show his love toward others. 
Corey Tin Boom is one that is familiar to most of us here, who suffered tremendously in Hitler's concentration camps. Corey was a woman already well into her 50s and settled in life in a happy little home in Holland when it was all interrupted by the horrors of World War II. Four members of her family, including her beloved father, were killed as a result of Hitler's atrocities. They were killed because they sought to show the love of Jesus to Jews. Jews who were being persecuted. Jews who did not believe in Jesus, but Corey was determined that they could see Jesus by love which she and her family would show to them. This is the same way that the Lord Jesus wants us to work in showing his love to other people. There is a gospel according to Matthew and a gospel according to Mark and a gospel according to Luke and a gospel according to John. But there is also a gospel according to you. And the only thing about Jesus Christ that some people outside of our little valley in Montreat and outside of our familiar friendships will ever see is the love of Jesus which you show to that person. And when we are like this, we are living like our Lord Jesus wants us to live. We become the flavor, the salt of the earth, and we become the light of the world. Corey is very sick now out in California. And I remember at the close of one of her books, she said that she was not waiting for the undertaker. She was waiting for the upper taker. <laughs> that would be just like Corey. She was waiting for the upper taker. She was waiting because her life is separate and distinct from what so much of that which rules the life of people who are dominated by the world system. She loves Jesus just that much. And she told the sweet story that I close with of an old lady who loved her Bible dearly. And she happened to be one of those people who believed that uh, the passage in Thessalonians which tells of the trumpet of God sounding and the angels coming and, and the Christians being caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And she was thinking about this, the old woman was, as she read her Bible. And the milkman came and he rang the doorbell and she didn't answer. And he rang the doorbell again, and she didn't answer. And he rang the doorbell again, and she didn't answer. And he rang the doorbell again. Finally, she came to the door. And she was just taken up in this beautiful thought about the uh, angels of God coming one day to take her and Jesus Christ coming back to claim his own. And so the milkman was a little irritated, and he said, What's the matter with you? Are you deaf? And she said, No, I'm not deaf. She said, I was reading my Bible, and I was just very happy because I was thinking one day the upper taker is going to come. And the milkman looked at her like she was crazy. And she said, one day, I'm not going to die, but one day Jesus will come back to take me to himself. And you might come and ring this doorbell, and no one will come to the door. Because if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you wouldn't be one of his. And then she witnessed to the milkman about faith in Jesus Christ. 
And so you can turn anything that you do into a witness for him. And by this, we show the love of the Lord Jesus. We show it to others because we die to self to live in him. Let us consider the fact that none of us would be Christians if someone hadn't witnessed to us Jesus wasn't born in Montreal. We know about him because someone else told us. And so we want to tell them and we want to show them his love. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with each of us now and forevermore.